City, City Limits. Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Well, morning everyone. You're listening to City Limits and I'm Meg Kimber and I'm here in the studio with Eugenia. Eugenia. Zubchenko. Eugenia, why do you have such a hard name to say? I just don't know, Meg. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... So today is March the 6th. It's two days before International Women's Day. Woohoo! Yeah. Do you have any plans for International Women's Day? What are you doing for the Friday? Uh, I am going to work. Oh, like, good. <laughs> yeah. Great. This is about Bring labor the as money. Well. Yeah. <laughs> so because of this, uh, Eugenia and I had a little chat and we had a little chat with Kevin and he passed on a message to John and today it's just me and Eugenia in the studio. Talking about transport. Talking about transport, but specifically from perspective of well a gendered perspective mm, um, yeah. women children uh gendered gender, on specific. gender diverse people yeah yeah yep. so we've sort of been looking at some things over the week yeah we've been reading a lot of articles <laughs> <laughs> about you- about various topics from the representation of women as tram drivers in uh-huh. melbourne Yes. to uh, how train stations can be designed for better safety for everyone, especially women and gender-diverse people. Yeah, and we'll, the first guest that we'll have is at about 10 past nine, and it's Dr Nicole Calms, um, who's a, uh, part of the XYX lab at Monash uh, School of Art, Design and Architecture. So um, she's been doing a lot of work on how design impacts uh, transport experiences for women and girls. So um, that will be one topic that we'll look at. But Eugenia, you read the stuff about sort of representation in the workforce, right? I scanned, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, obviously, I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but obviously, um, uh, yeah, in the transport industry, both from a design perspective and from a, you know, uh, operational perspective, you know, the actual people driving our trams and buses and trains, mm-hmm. there's still a really, really long way to go in terms of achieving gender equality. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things from one of the articles that I read just about design and planning and how, uh, and architecture, mm. how it's been a very male dominated industry. Totally. Yeah. And that the idea of, um, you know, that public spaces are just ungendered and and have no impact and they're just neutral which is a classic move of of a kind of a patriarchy or a masculine kind of way of thinking is like um this is just a neutral space but in actual fact it it is a better space for men yeah yeah yeah, i guess the the fact that people think that it's neutral tends to by default assume that the male perspective is the yeah is the universal one exactly Yeah. yeah and i noticed even the articles that we were reading um, there was a bit of debate about whether we should be trying trying to aim for uh, neutral design, or whether um, we should actually really actively consider the role of gender mm. and how that shapes people's experiences differently. 
Yes. So what, what, you studied architecture, right? Yeah, I did. What was your experience in that space? <laughs> <laughs> You've uh, got five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, study was great. Um, the workforce was a little bit different. <laughs> I see. Yeah, I actually looked up the statistics for women in architecture just before the show, mm. and uh, there's a great organization called Parla that researches women's role in the industry, and they have some really clear stats. So apparently at the moment 31% of architects are women, Mm. Um, and then that decreases down to 17% when you look at people who lead their own firm. So, okay. And I, I remember when I was studying the, the, you know, cohort was at least 50, 50, even maybe right. a little bit more female than male. So yeah, I reckon that's really interesting to look at how, yeah. you know, what kind of professions women are interested in studying and mm-hmm. then how that translates to the workforce and then to, to actually kind of leading their own career paths. Absolutely. I think mm. that's probably true for a lot of areas in terms of education. Women are, are, are up there in terms of representation. And then when it comes out into the workforce, there are other issues mm. in terms of like culture mm. and also uh, labour, division of labour and, and how that is still not fair. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And even what, pe- what women um, and gender diverse people value, I guess. And yeah. How that differs. You know, in this report that I was reading... They said that one of the reasons that women perhaps don't don't lead, you know, found their own firms and, and mm. start their own businesses is because they really value a work-life balance. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, something that's quite hard to manage when you're running your own business. So. Yeah, <laughs> but that's because the, the way that business and capitalism is designed, I think. Yeah, like totally. It just, does it have to be that way? Yeah. Like it's, it disadvantages yeah, people who want to work part-time or, you know, yeah, people who care for their mental health. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we shouldn't be having to make a dis- make a choice Choose. between mental yeah. health and professional yeah. success. Yeah, or even just financial security, you mm. know. Totally. Um I at I was at the um Brunswick Music Festival on the weekend mm. and there was a stall um uh, which is obviously like the festivals on Sydney Road. There was a stall that I know uh, Kevin if he's listening will be excited and <laughs> probably knows everything about this. But um the push is for the 10, ten minute trains on the upfield line. Mm-hmm. Um so p- uh, as listeners would know part of the upfield track is um a single line track so duplicating the upfield track and there's a rally on saturday the 16th of march at 11 a.m and if you get together at the corner of bonwick street and dukes road faulkner um followed by a march to gowrie station and you can join the protest train to gowrie station um, meeting at jewel station at 10.08 coburg station at 10.15 upfield station at 10.14 Hmm, lots of options. Yeah. <laughs> so you're getting all on the same train. Yeah, great. And then in my imagination, everybody sings union songs together in harmony. <laughs> <laughs> There's some ukulele. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> fiddles and stuff. Um, did, did you notice anything about the um, campaign to improve the cycling infrastructure on Sydney Road? Because I know that's a quite a long-running initiative no. that people in Brunswick have been getting behind. I didn't see anything about that, but this would be a good one to bring up with our second guest today, who's going to be in about 9.30, which is, who is uh, Rachel Linsky, who's doing the Sustainable Cities uh, campaigning with Friends of the Earth. So she'll be joining us for a chat about all things planning and the orbital link and um, what was the other issue? Oh, against the the, the freeway. Mm. Yeah. So um, I have you, what have you heard about the Sydney Road? 
Oh, nothing in the last few months, but mm. I know that there was a group of local residents that were getting together to um, to campaign for a separate bike mm-hmm. lane on Sydney Road because I think a few years ago there was a yep. um, a really big mm. accident there where a cyclist was really severely injured or maybe even killed. Okay. Mm. Uh, I mean, they have the bicycle line up along the um, train line Train there. line, yeah. But for people who want to use Sydney Road, it would yeah. be almost impossible. Yeah. It would definitely be diverted off that. Very dangerous. Yeah. And speaking of gender, I did read at some stage in my travels through the internet that there's um, there's a study that shows that women are less likely to cycle because of the safety yeah. considerations. So from a gender perspective, that would yeah. be really great if we could get better cycling infrastructure. In absolutely. Melbourne. Absolutely. And hopefully we'll have to go now and, and ring Dr. Calms, but um, hopefully we'll be able to pick that topic up back again with Rachel. Yeah, great. All right, welcome back to City Limits. Uh, we are talking today about transport from a women's perspective in the lead up to International Women's Day. And we've got our first guest on the line. Her name is Dr. Nicole Carms. She's an associate professor at the Monash Department of Design and the founding director of XYX Lab, leading national research on space, gender and communication. Hi, Dr. Carms. Hello there. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Wonderful. Ah, so uh, the first question that we I wanted to ask you is about the XYX lab. Um, can you tell us about how and why the lab was started? I can. So as you just mentioned, the XYX lab is based at Monash University and we're unusually based in the Faculty of Architecture, Design and Art. And so we're really a group of designers, of architects, urban researchers who are interested in thinking about this relationship between gender and place. And I think that one of the reasons that the lab was started is because architecture has kind of suffered for a long time around a lack of representation of women in, I guess, the higher levels of the profession. And there's been a real movement or a turn towards addressing this in the profession and and that really gave this kind of lab an opportunity because we wanted to create research that women were interested in, that was about women, and I think that that's been part of its success at Monash. Yeah, wonderful. And so what kind of projects are you working on at the moment, especially if there are any that relate to transport? Yeah, so we've been working since 2016 on a project called Free to Be, and we've been doing that project with the organisation Plan International. So lots of Melbournians are aware that in 2016 we ran a project that was based around gathering data for um, thinking about women's experiences in cities. And in 2018, so late last year, we ran another project that was an international research project that looked at cities as diverse as Lima, Sydney, Kampala, Madrid, and also in Delhi. And these initially started as projects just looking at urban spaces and essentially kind of documenting safe and unsafe experiences. Mm. Um, And a lot of that was around sexual harassment. But what also emerged from that research was this huge problem with the public transport systems across all of those cities. So even mm-hmm. though those cities are very diverse, all of the transport hubs had huge amounts of um, unsafe aspects but sexual harassment. And so that has become a really large part of the work that we're doing at Monash. Mm-hmm. And uh, public transport has become a key focus. And, and I think you know there's a lot of that in the media and there's lots of reasons and important reasons for us to be thinking about that in terms of women's experiences at the moment. Yeah, it was really interesting to read the some of the details in the report about the experiences that people had uh, feeling safe or unsafe on public transport and, and the related areas. Um, mm. can, is there any findings that were particularly surprising for you? 
Well, um, absolutely, all the time there are, there are surprising things. Mm. I mean, I should say that the work was predominantly focused on young women, so women under the age of 30, 35. Yeah. Uh, and so, obviously, women who are in their middle years or older would perhaps have different experiences. Mm. But um, what we were un- really beginning to understand is that if a woman has an unsafe experience in public transport, then around 50% of the time she won't go back to that place alone. Mm-hmm. and uh, around 12% of women will actually never go back again. So you can see mm-hmm. that that would then change women's whole relationship to public transport if you're never going to get that bus or train or go to that station again. Wow. But we also now have stats on how this affects women's access to school and to work. So women change their jobs or they move house if they don't have access to good public transport. We wow. also know that as soon as women can, and if they're privileged enough to, they will buy a car and opt out of public transport altogether because they see it as so problematic. So there's lots of really difficult and complex things to be thinking about in terms of this research. Yeah, that's amazing. And I I guess, yeah, like you mentioned, all those issues um, around moving house and buying a car would kind of affect women with different economic um, conditions Mm. quite differently. That's right. Um, Even just having to, you know, modify your behaviour to get an Uber or a cab um, women, we've we've talked about this in the media before, are kind of using their income to keep themselves safe. Yeah, fantastic. Um, and what aspects of public transport design do you think might need to change in order to provide better experiences for women? Well, I think it's a really interesting question. Um, I think that I think there's been a, a few moments where there's been knee-jerk reactions, and one of the things that, even though we've been doing this research, we really don't have the complexity of data and a clear understanding of the situation as it affects all women. Um, And a lot of the research that we've done has certainly focused on the very central areas of um, the city and metropolitan areas. And we know that there are some really important things that we need to look at in terms of the outer suburbs and regional areas and that those situations might be quite different. So really gathering data is incredibly important. Um, And... At the XYX Lab at Monash University, our commitment is to working with women and girls to think about solutions. So what that means is that we don't see ourselves or public transport providers as experts and being able to kind of tell us exactly how it should be, Mm. but actually that we need to include women in in developing the solutions. So we work in what we describe as a co-design environment where we have women and young girls working alongside architects, urban designers, public transport providers, and we see that as one of the key ways that we can really work out the long and short-term solutions because a lot of the issues are um, a very long game. So if we're thinking about behaviour change in men and all those kinds of things, that's a very long process. Mm -hmm. And so we also need to be really plotting short-term and medium-term strategies that are going to allow cities to be accessible for women so that they're, they're not having the unsafe experiences that they're having at the moment. And on the topic of data collection, it seemed like the project had a particularly interesting way of collecting data and so I'm interested in how that evolved and how the project was designed and the data collected. Mm. So the Free2Be project that has been developed by Plan International and actually also by um, an organisation called Crowdspot is essentially a crowd mapping tool, which means that um, you're plotting and pinning, if you like, spots on a map to really specifically describe where those spaces and places are. And the other part of the crowd mapping 
is that you actually tell a story of what's happened for you. So it's a it's mm. a pin and a moment and a place, but it's also extrapolated through a really specific story um, that women are kind of telling about what's happening for them there. And I think the one of the really great things about crowd mapping in terms of um, the work that we're doing is that the anonymity is really important. So you don't have to log in or make a name or, you know, a code or anything like that. You can just use it and the data is collected anonymously, mm. which means that those kinds of things where women struggle in terms of reporting and um, having to really um, uh, identify themselves, whether it's with PSOs or police people, this um, is kind of taken out of that equation and so in terms of these sensitive issues like sexual harassment it's really useful because we can gather data and women can share their stories in ways that makes them kind of feel safe yeah and do, do women access it by is it through an app or is it online or how do they get so it's it? a web-based interface yeah. so yeah. Um, you don't have to download an app you can mm. do it through any kind of device um, I should say that the project was only open last year, so mm. what you can see online now is an archive of the map, so you can still go in and see women's stories and really you know, look through the map and see all the kind of places and spaces, but you can't contribute to it anymore. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that um, you might be interested in developing something in the future that would be kind of like a live version of this where women could continue yeah. to see? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, when it was running, the map is was live, and so you could see and contribute to it, but... At the moment, we're trying to negotiate for um, uh, perhaps even a, a, a larger map that is much more uh, that has a longer time frame, so that we can really see how different cities um, can emerge in terms of how women want to map their experiences. Um, I think that it's it's a really interesting project to think about the comparisons between cities, mm. and um, so I think that's certainly part of our plan. Yeah, mm. yeah, because there's um, going to be different outcomes and. And experiences for people in the in the what, the global south as opposed to the global north, so to speak. <laughs> well, yeah, there are. But actually, one of the things that was so surprising is that, except for Kampala, mm. the experiences for women in Delhi, Sydney, Lima, and Madrid—I mean, very, very different cities—there mm. were lots of similarities. And wow. so, that's been really useful in terms of really saying that this is a universal issue that crosses culture and demographic and. Um, uh, you know, that really adds to the weight of really why it's important for us to start thinking very carefully about women's experiences in cities. Yeah. Um, you can't kind of defer to reasons when you have this kind of data. That's it. And this is why it's such a great project to be collecting that data. Um, mm. our, our last question uh, for you. Thank you so much for your time today. We're just wondering Sorry. what... Uh, so by 2030, public transport use is predicted to grow by 30% in Australia. And if, as you say, women are um, pushed out of this... Uh, you know, access to this resource. What do you hope from from your research that will be the future of of transport for women locally but also Mm. globally? Look, I think there's a lot of attention at the moment in the media and certainly the XYX Lab is contributing to a lot of discussions with um, the Victorian State Government. We're also working in um, Sydney with the Commission for Sydney and, um, you know, PTV and Transdev, these stakeholders are... They are incredibly dedicated to helping to find solutions. Mm. And so I think that um, what we also know is that there's lots of different stakeholders in this space. So there's a lot of complexity and a lot of coming together of those stakeholders is required to Mm. really nut out a a solution that, as I said before, is going to deal with kind of the short-term needs but also has a longer-term vision. So um, Mm. I guess what I hope for is that there's able to be some uh, coming together of those 
stakeholders, but also that we've seen a message over the last few years around safety which is just very generalised and doesn't directly address women and gender. And yeah. I think we really need to see a very targeted gender message come mm. out of these discussions where we're directly addressing women's experiences, not you know, covering it over with just general safety concerns yeah. and really working with women to find solutions. Mm. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Carms. Great. Thank you for having me. I love the <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, we should we should also quickly mention that uh, we've been talking about women's experiences of transport, but of course there's a whole uh, diversity of experiences and people that yeah. are um, trans or, or queer or have mm-hmm. a fluid gender identity also like a particularly disproportionately affected by um, public transport safety as well. And there was an article recently that was talking about that and we tried to get um, Simona Mm. Kostukam on the show, Um, but she's about to finish a PhD, so (laughs) maybe another time in the future. Yeah, hopefully we can talk to her in a subsequent episode. Yeah, yep. So we'll take a break because our next guest is here and we'll be back in a couple of minutes. And we're back on City Limits. You're here with me, Meg Kimber and Eugenia, and we have our guest in the studio Rachel Linsky, who's in charge of the Sustainable Cities uh, project at Friends of the Earth. Look, Friends of the Earth doesn't really have Her bosses charge, right? like that. <laughs> <laughs> we are a non-hierarchical, anti-hierarchical organisation. So. Boss lady. <laughs> I do get the opportunity to coordinate and, ah, um, lovely. you know, <laughs> yeah, kind of drive, drive things all. It's a collective effort. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about the kind of campaigns that you're running at Friends of the Earth and especially the ones related to public transport? and women, if there are any. Yeah, for sure. Um, Yeah, so Friends of the Earth is a pretty big social justice and environmental organisation and we kicked off um, a bit over a year ago um, to really begin the conversation and be part of the conversation that was already happening around our city and the, you know, changes to um, population growth and, you know, increasing pressures on the, you know, resources and the um, capacity of the city to cope with all these people Mm. Um, and we've really been working mostly on the issue of transport as a really um, tangible way of um, you know everyone moves around every day and there's lots of work to be done in that space to um, create Melbourne as a more sustainable city. Mm. It also really ties into climate change and where a lot of our campaigns lie that you know transport is the second biggest and fastest growing sector of emissions Um, and we've seen incredible changes in the energy sector as we've transitioned um, away from you know dirty fossil fuels into clean technology of the future and our transport system isn't really having that conversation right now mm. we've got um, yeah huge plans to build giant roads right through our city through our suburbs um, through our parklands mm. <laughs> um, but we've also got really exciting public transport on the agenda you know, for the first time in many decades, we've got a really ambitious plan to um, do a bunch of stuff in the rail network and build new infrastructure and expand our network. So people are starting to see there are other options, there are other possibilities, and it's really about, well, how do we ramp that up and make sure that that isn't just um, the end of the story, that that's really um, built with people in mind, built in a just way that's going to encourage people to use it and make their lives easier and Mm. you know all the flow and effects that that has for changes to where people work or how people work and Mm. how they um 
you know, access services and education and, mm-hmm. you know, where houses are, all mm-hmm. these things all come together with um, as we kind of ch- shape and change how our city transport system works. Mm. And so, the, the like you were saying, the, um, the way that Friends of the Earth works is, <laughs> you know, really uh, getting information from the people who are actually affected buy things have you set up a kind of a working group or something how is it how are you organizing it yeah so we have a collective that catches up every monday night at friends of the earth um it's a great group of people that um gather from people who are kind of almost on the front lines who are kind of Mm -hmm. seeing you know these mega road plans right in their backyard who are really concerned about it or have had a long-standing interest in the transport area um, and want to kind of get their hands dirty and do more than just read about it and want to do something. Mm. Um, there's heaps of students that, you know, might be studying stuff um, at one of our many universities here in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I think it really connects that, like, you can learn stuff in a classroom, but when you actually take it out in the real world, it can play out very differently. Yeah. There's a lot of politics involved. Um, and, and yeah, like what are people's actual experiences? <laughs> How do we make sure that they're front and center and really raised up? So yeah, yeah, we kind of, yeah, bring everyone together once a week to kind of catch up and touch base on, um, the actions that we're taking and yeah. things that are happening in the world. Mm, totally. And of course we've been talking about, um, sort of gender equality mm. issues in transport this week and like you're saying, creating initiatives that start with what people's real experiences are and what they actually want is a pretty good place to start <laughs> if you're trying Definitely. to represent all genders in the transport industry. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you have any thoughts on how these kind of new transport projects that are being done across Melbourne could possibly influence gender equality? Yeah, obviously a super important um, layer to be thinking around when we're talking about transport and there's yeah always a gendered element to it that people um the options that people have and the accessibility that they have to different transport options and how that works for their lives um is different for people with different experiences and mm. um while we might not work directly on a campaign for you know a particular gender to change in a particular mm. way in the transport system it's important to center it in all of our campaigns um about how we can make sure it is accessible to everyone that everyone feels safe that there's you know the measures and initiatives in place to support people to have choices (laughs) because right now um you know the majority of our population live out in our suburbs um that's where there are less public transport options and so that means that there's um decreased um, accessibility Mm -hmm. for for public transport Um, or it feels more dangerous, it feels more isolated. Mm. There's so many um, things to overcome as we kind of Mm. try and build a more equitable and accessible city Mm. um, in in many ways, in many many areas, including transport. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Meg and I were reading some articles in the conversation this week that were talking about how how those issues like sprawl and suburbanisation might affect women disproportionately since, statistically speaking, women are still kind of the the dominant childcare providers mm. and so they're often the ones that are stuck at home all day with mm. kids and prams and can't get on the tram very easily. Yeah, for sure. And, yeah, I think it's really interesting, yeah, talking about the changes in our um, lives that we've seen more women entering the workforce, you know, mm-hmm. in the um, past few decades and there's – 
women who are juggling even more things exactly. and more tasks. So how easy it is for them to yeah. do multiple things in a journey. Yeah. Um, mm. If you don't, if you've got to change, you know, two or three buses, or the train only comes every twenty minutes, or mm. every hour, or whatever it is. Yeah. It it reduces the options that you can to engage, even if people really want to be able to do that. Mm. They just don't have the choice. And yeah. then it becomes, as we've seen, because of the 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 way that cars and highways are prioritised in planning in in cities in Melbourne, um, then it not becomes, all international cities. No, yeah. <laughs> in Melbourne yeah. for sure. Um, it becomes a financial issue as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, who can afford a car and then can afford to get to work or something like that. Yeah, or yeah. even things like afford to have two cars. You know, if right. someone's taking one car to work yep. and then mm, the yeah. um, you know other person as you said statistically speaking is mm. going to be the female at home mm. childcare or looking after the home or um working from home yeah. doesn't have access to you know a vehicle yeah. um there's certainly a lot of yeah um research and um stats coming out now around how much um toll roads and the the cost of well, you've only got one option to get on that road to get to where you need to be. Yeah. Um, but the cost of those fines for not pay- paying tolls um, is really impacting people on the outer uh-huh. suburbs and the urban fringes. And, you know, you see it in the western suburbs. Um, yeah. I should have looked this up. But there's, there's something like a baby being born, you know, every eight minutes or something out uh-huh. there. So there's a lot of people, a huge amount of population and a lot of, a lot um, of you know, caregivers out there who are, you know, yeah. stuck out there <laughs> yeah and they haven't built public transport into those new housing estates and built jobs into the local area and all the services that are needed the hospitals and the schools eventually and all that is that part of the campaign with sustainable cities are you is it part of the, what you're looking at and are you getting feedback from participants or you know people who are part of the movement um on financial side of things and stuff like that or is it more about the energy use and yeah. wise about that. Yeah. I mean, there's heaps of different angles and yeah. I think it's about finding the different messages that resonate for people and mm. um, that different people can connect to. There's no one size fits all. Um, and yeah, there's definitely that taps into a whole different demographic that maybe wouldn't have thought about mm-hmm. um, this mm. as an issue or mm. even question that there could be another way to do things. Yeah. Um, so it's great to be able to bring that element in. Um, and I mean talking about finances, one of the key pieces of work that we're doing at the moment in the lead up to the state budget Mm. is coming up. Nice segue. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so in two months' time we'll have the uh, first budget from the re-elected Andrews government. Um, They obviously went into the election with some very ambitious, uh, a huge amount of commitments and um, promises that now really need to be delivered on. Um, whether that's, you know, continuing the work on the Metro Tunnel, mm. um, steamrolling ahead with the Northeast Link um, toll road, mega road in um, Melbourne, mm. or the suburban rail loop concept that needs like far more detail to work out, you know, what, mm. what that's going to look like and how will people actually use that. Yeah. So, so have they committed to that suburban rail loop? They've, um, they've committed to like doing the business case and, okay. you know, figuring out how that will look. <laughs> Which is maybe committing to it later. <laughs> committing <laughs> yeah. to thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I imagine there'll be some dollars for doing some of that work to to work out where to, where is actually it needed and you know. And so you guys are sort of keeping the pressure on the government in the lead up to the state budget. I mean because the uh, the Andrews government 
had this landslide win mm-hmm. that um, you know means that they're in a position to do whatever they want, really. So how do you keep them, you know, accountable to <laughs> what they've promised? Yeah, like that is the question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What are the other levers that you can use to really, yeah, keep them accountable um, and keep them ramping up this ambition? And I think it's exciting, a huge opportunity because they really saw those wins where they've invested money in mm. changing the transport systems, in getting rid of those level crossings, in mm. starting construction on, you know, important public transport upgrades and improvements, mm. extending, you know, the rail line out to Mernda, initiatives like that that have really been led by community campaigners and are now being delivered Mm. and people are loving it. (laughs) So I think they've got a really strong mandate. um, And, yeah, the real question is ensuring that people are really centred in that, that it's not just about Mm. um, building stuff as quickly as possible to win votes and, Mm. you know, look like you're doing something. Doing something for something's sake is not going to end up with the best outcomes. So it's really about taking a step back and saying, well, what are the needs and how do we make sure we're meeting them? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and speaking about making sure that people are at the centre of that process, we've been talking a little bit about gender representation in various industries. So, do, mm. like, do you know anything about the, the involvement that women have in these massive transport projects generally? <laughs> oh, well, interesting question. I mean, yeah, it was yeah. super interesting coming out post-election um, that it's an all-female team um, at the top um, with in terms of like the ministers for public transport and delivery of these major projects. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. the kind of the cabinet sort of yes. ministers that the Andrews government picked. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, so we've got the minister for transport infrastructure, um, just into Allen and the um, minister for public um, transport services or something along those lines with Melissa Horn. And then even the roads minister um, is um, a female um, Yala Pulford. So, yeah, right. So that so, must be quite a new thing. Yeah, and I think certainly, yeah, that is a shift that it is, you know, yeah. my understanding has been a pretty male-dominated area um, and I think you'd find, you know, as you trickle down that there's um, less of those changes just yet. But um, yeah. it's great to see that, like, initiative from the top and how that can transform um, the rest of the sector when we've got, you know, infrastructure being built and lots of construction jobs. There's mm-hmm. obviously gendered, um, mm-hmm. you know, females are vastly under-represented mm-hmm. in that area. But then when you come to other things like the service delivery and, you know, how are we promoting, you know, females into, you know, driving maintenance or all those mm-hmm. ongoing customer service and all that other stuff um, to, yeah, kind of promote, um, mm-hmm. yeah, people into those positions that have a range of experiences mm-hmm. and can bring a range of stuff to that job. And yeah. hopefully working in a climate where they feel empowered to offer what they know of their experiences as well. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, because, you know, given what we've been talking about in terms of women being kind of almost disproportionately affected by public transport, yeah, it's really ironic that these industries are traditionally so male-dominated. <laughs> or, or that's the problem. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, maybe not ironic. So, yeah, hopefully this is a sign of some change to come. Um, so on the topics of sort of the government um, plans and things like that, where what's the position of friends on the earth on terms in terms of the uh, orbital rail and the northeast link yeah so the northeast link is a giant freeway 16.5 billion dollars planned um link you know part of it is between the um 
M80 Ring Road um, down to the Eastern Freeway, but a huge amount of the changes are actually on the Eastern Freeway, mm. funneling more and more traffic towards our city, mm. our city that's already congested, that spent decades trying to reduce the number of cars coming in here, um, and now they're going to build at some points an 18-lane road that um, will just induce and encourage more people to jump in their cars and drive towards the city. What's the logic behind it? What are they saying this is about congestion? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's getting on with doing stuff, building stuff that's going to tackle <laughs> congestion. So we're pretty opposed to this um, and we have been working strongly with community groups out there. There's lots of changes that will happen. It will have to um, tunnel or do something to get around the Yarra River. Mm. Um, there's parkland out there, you know, um, beautiful land that needs to be protected. Um, and, yeah, it's just a further... Um, additional toll road that will likely um, be sending more profits to a private company. So there's many layers of which we think that, that yeah, the government really needs to rethink it. Mm-hmm. Um, go back to the drawing board, especially when they have then, yeah, put a project like the suburban rail loop on the table, mm-hmm. which if you look at the map, follows an eerily similar path really? <laughs> in that part of the city. Oh. That is interesting. Exactly. So obviously long-term uh, um, giant highway isn't going to be enough to deal with the amount of people that need to move in that area or anywhere in the city. And yeah. so that's why we have exciting public transport initiatives. People are seeing that we need to build other transport options to move lots of people efficiently. Mm. And Right now, it's a very vague plan. <laughs> so while I say the map, you know, it's a video put out by the, you know, an election um, video <laughs> that was put out. <laughs> so we'd love to see some more detail um, and, yeah, be part of that process of, um, you know, shaping what is it that, you know, people really need. Mm. How is it going to work? How is it going to function? What other positive benefits can it have for local communities? And, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in ensuring that people have... Um, access to more transport op- options is is there a um is there a perception in the government do you reckon that r- roads are what people want rather than public transport yeah i do think that they have shifted um in so far as it's more now we need roads but also we need public transport so mm-hmm. roads are definitely still dominate dominant um but there is um yeah, I think starting to be glimmers of hope and scope that we can <laughs> that we can yeah do some really ambitious public transport stuff and people will love it. People mm. use it, you know, decades of underinvestment and yet we've got growing patronage. I don't know if you um, catch you know trains or trams. They just or even yeah. like I was getting the bus last night at like nine thirty p.m. and it was full (laughs) people were standing in the aisle so you know I know there's like a perception about buses but when you have frequent direct buses that people that fill those gaps Mm -hmm. that our like built um, infrastructure in the tram and train network don't fill you can have buses that really um, provide a really desirable service for people absolutely yeah scope for you know, it's improving services, not just building new stuff that's, yeah. that can have really quick, tangible impacts for 
people's lives. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on the Wednesday's transport special of City Limits, how <laughs> how there's this kind of negative feedback loop of people thinking that buses are underused, so then there's no investment in them, so then the services yep. get increasingly inconvenient, whereas... And then no one uses them and the whole yeah. thing continues. <laughs> but um, that's one of the things that we talk about, but also I think it really affects women. We've been we've heard from Dr. Calms on you know how um, harassment occurs for women yeah. around public transport majoritively like um or significantly and so you know the report that she had when people when women were like changing transport they're going from a tram to a bus or from a train to Mm. a tram and you have to walk through somewhere that's dark or sparsely Mm. inhabited or you know or or if you're just waiting somewhere and there's no one else around Mm. women will change their transport choices yeah they'll pay money to catch an uber or a taxi mm. so those times of interchange or when they're women crucial moments most dangerous yeah mm. that yeah, was right. part of the reporting to bring in a totally different example mm. i um am originally from canberra and i worked in bike advocacy there great and i um now when i moved to melbourne was mm. like oh great like people in melbourne ride their bikes really i can ride my bike but the kind of most direct and um, obvious route for me to get from my home to work um, was through a park. And, yeah. you know, I often have meetings late at night or, you know, I'm out, you know, in mm-hmm. the city, living my life. And coming home at nighttime in the dark through a park, there was definitely the perception that I felt less safe. Absolutely. And, um, so, yeah, I actually don't really ride very much anymore. Mm-hmm. And. I know that that's a big factor. It's also a lot further to ride because Melbourne's a lot, much larger city than <laughs> Canberra, but, you know, many factors. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a really concrete example of the kind of stuff that we're talking about, like women changing their habits um, yeah. as a result of feeling unsafe on public transport or getting around the city and that yeah. having really big consequences for people's lives. Yeah. And I know research certainly shows, like, the safer a city is for bike riders, the more women will mm. ride. So how many females you've got on bikes is a good indicator of how safe that city is or how safe the infrastructure is or how safe the you know totally behaviors of you know others in the yeah. community are yeah in a way things that help women feel safe are good for everyone mm-hmm. right well, yeah, then you're more likely to like let your kids ride or you know mm. just like not even think about it and just jump on your bike without mm having to even think about anything yeah totally yeah Yeah, it just reminds me every time that we're like we're like not some sort of minority that needs to be considered in the planning process as an afterthought like Like, it's a big favor for us Uh. yeah like you know it's at least 50 percent of the human population that you're talking about if not more yeah and so a bicycle is part of the um project for for sustainable cities for friends of the earth yeah they're definitely um part of the broad um campaign and the work that we've been um doing it isn't front and center um there's yeah i think lots of um groups and voices out there who are um advocating really strongly for um bike infrastructure and improvements to um getting more people on bikes um Uh uh but yeah it hasn't been front and center for the work that we've been doing because one of the big i mean the friends of the earth isn't largely an environmental organization so your focus is on that and um one of the big issues probably the biggest issue is climate change Mm. and we do know that that disproportionately it's a a pretty big (laughs) one guys if you haven't heard about it google it Um, um but we know that it disproportionately affects people who are um poorer 
people who, you know, women, children, um, people, you know, in developing nations. Um, we have a big responsibility to obviously be conscious of our energy use. And you were saying that public transport is, is, is a growing, is the second largest user of fossil fuels. Is that what you were saying? No, the whole transport the sector. sector. Including cars. So, yeah. So, okay, largely right. it comes from private vehicles. Yeah. Also, okay. Like um, freight movements. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. what's the um, – we've got a, probably like five more minutes. Yeah. Um, but I we'll, will, just yeah. on that, yeah. um, give a little plug for one of my colleagues is doing work in the renewable space and talking about the um, – uh, energy that's used in the public transport network. Mm. Um, it is the second biggest use of electricity in Victoria mm. in terms of, you know, big public um, sectors. Yeah. There's like the um, aluminium smelter. Okay. And then there's public transport. In because really? trains and trams are both run on electricity, electricity right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. And we had this really exciting announcement of the trams are going to be run on solar, yeah. which people love. It's like a great incentive for building more renewable energy. But also mm. every time you want to put more trams on, yeah, you got to build more renewable energy. So it's kind of ticking both those boxes. Nice. And now they're like campaigning to get the train network also run by renewable energy. Mm. So is the solar trams thing going ahead? Yeah, yeah. yeah they've wow. awarded the um, contract for a company to, yeah, build a giant solar farm that will offset all and feed into the grid all of the energy that the tram network needs to use. Wow. Go Melbourne. Yeah. <laughs> That's good news. Win-win. Yeah. Some good news on City Limits. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. And so in terms of, like, climate change, what, um, you know, what effects do you see, like, in terms of getting the use of cars into a mm. lower area? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really about giving people those other options that yeah. making it convenient and accessible for them to get out of the car every single day or whatever it is, you know, making some of those changes. Um, it's about leaving the roads for the people that actually need them, who mm-hmm. might have accessibility issues, who might, yeah, have reasons that they need to be in the car. Groups like our emergency services that need to yeah. get quickly to places um, don't need to be stuck in traffic from um, everyone commuting to work. So are there other ways that people can be um, taking those trips? Mm. Um, it's um, – okay. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, because if you have a um, – if you want to not be a climate criminal and you just don't want <laughs> – you want to ride your bike or if you want to take public transport, it would make a big difference if that was easier. If it yeah. didn't disproportionately, you know, affect you and your accessibility to, like, work or even, it, like, living your life, as you say, like, going out in the evening and, and yeah. being able to get home safely. Yeah, it's interesting, the intersection between um, environmentalism, <clears throat> pardon me, gender that we've been talking about so far. Like, if women are feeling unsafe on public transport and they're kind of being forced to riding mm. the, driving their cars or taking Ubers, it's sort of limiting our ability to contribute to mm-hmm. a positive, Positively. Mm. you know, environmental future. So, yeah, again, Definitely. have to think about designing for women in all areas. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, and on that topic, you're you are standing, studying a Master's of Urban Planning, are you not? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How's that going? <laughs> yeah, it's good. I really enjoy it. Um, and, yeah, it's a great kind of compliment to the kind of hands-on um, in the politics and in the real life of um, the work that I get to do in mm. in the transport space um, to really, yeah, understand some, you know, extend my knowledge in other areas that I maybe, like, didn't 
mm. think about or know about. So, mm. yeah, yeah, awesome. One of the articles that we read was saying that planners, are, that women are un- underrepresented in the planning area. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, I've met some incredible female planners, so yeah, <laughs> hopefully that's changing. And I would, yeah, I'd say the course, yeah, it's like probably 50-50. Yeah. Um, so hopefully that, you know, you see that coming through. And certainly in the researchers and the lecturers that I've had some, yeah, incredible um yeah female um planners in the space mm. yeah because planning i mean this is a big big topic about you know on city limits in a sense because planning affects everything about how we use a city yes you know so mm. it's yeah it's good to remember that that's not it's not by accident that our city is the way that it is yeah it's because people have thought about it and been like let's put this here or do that there yeah i, I was reading an interesting article a few weeks ago about um who uh who makes maps and that mm. you know um historically it was men making maps and so men were putting you know places of interest on the maps that were of interest to them mm-hmm. and not for women who you know might be yeah more interested in like where there's you know a cafe that they can take a pram into or right. you know a um a, you know where where are like health certain health services that yes. they would be after that men might not be mm. and so these are not like on maps <laughs> yeah yes. or or where people where women feel safe or unsafe which is something yeah. we were talking about with dr Carnes before yeah. yeah yeah do you think that um if women were more involved in the transport industry <laughs> or the planning industry that we'd see different kinds of solutions or different kinds of transport infrastructure specifically yeah i hope so i think that the yeah the city would look very different if um we really represented the diversity of experiences that people have and, yeah, listen to some of the experiences that women have um, in terms of, yeah, safety or um, how they move around that's actually going to meet their requirements. Um, but the system right now has been designed for, you know, largely people going nine to five into the city and out. And, you know, in the decades when that was built, that was largely the male breadwinner of the house. Mm. Um, and so we've got this historical legacy that, yeah, is we're now trying to like work around it because mm. like lives have changed and work hours are changing and yeah, different roles in the home are yeah. constantly changing. Part of the problem is that the, the, the original design of it sort of remains invisible. Yeah. Like the idea that it's neutral the assumptions. is the falsehood that keeps it the way that it is because it's not neutral. It's been designed by men for men. Totally. And yeah. then when women try to use it, there's this pushback like, why do we need to change this thing? As if it's just neutral and universal. And Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. Yeah, there's all this research coming out about how women um, need more flexibility in their working lives and like we were saying before, make have have more destinations in a day. Like they need to pick up their child yeah. from childcare. They need to run errands. They need to go do things. And particularly important considering that women um, still statistically on average l- earn less than men Yeah, and retire with less superannu- significantly less superannuation than men mm. and um, have, have a, a more difficult time accessing the property market as we exactly. hear from the Housing for the Age Action Group. Women are disproportionately represented in the homeless population. Older women, yes. Mm. And um, that's that idea of the pink tax. Have you heard that term that um, women will pay more for certain services than men or certain products like I think it's sort of referred to like hairdressing yeah I was just gonna say (laughs) (laughs) but I think uh, you know one of the articles that I read was that there's a pink tax on transport 
well, because yeah. women are forced into taking taxis or you know have owning a car or something like that yeah and, and then you get a discount if you like catch a train you know exactly. more days of the week but if yeah. you're you know yeah only doing it two days a week because the other two you've got to drop a kid off and exactly do something else yeah. yeah yeah so it equates to i think generally more than seven percent of yeah extra that women are paying yeah mm. i think what would also be great if men were starting to yeah do some of those experiences of having to do multiple Absolutely. trips in a day you know totally. it kind of goes both ways how do we make it flexible for women to, or for people to access it yeah you know because the statistics on it are that although women are you know much more represented in the workforce in the public sphere um th- there's not an equal balance out with the um private sphere of caregiving care, and yeah. elder care and house care and things like that yeah definitely anyway we, we do have to wrap oh up gosh, sorry yeah. everyone so many interesting yeah. topics to talk about thanks so much for coming in thanks rachel for me. we'll finish up with the song by courtney barnett